Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Today we'll be talking about another simple command out of the, the Ten Commandments, which is to not steal. And I love what Emily's talking about here is the Christ-like reaction, the inverse of the issue that that command is representing or discussing, that life in so many ways is stolen from so many people. The, the jobs that she's talking about are this bridge from a place where life has been stolen to actually instead of grasping for control and what we can gain for us, we can create a bridge to give generously uh, for life to be closer uh, to the way it was, was meant to be. And so I love the work that Bob Beautifully is doing. I'm thankful we get to partner with them again. Two weeks from now is uh, when that event will take place, Friday night, Saturday, all day, and then Sunday during our gatherings. Uh, they'll have tons of great products every year. It seems we add like three to five to our own home, and so we'll see what happens this year. Uh, but I really love Bob Beautifully. would encourage you to participate, invite people. The impact is very tangible. Also, we're still looking for a few volunteers. Uh, a number of you already signed up, but we need people to set up and tear down for that event throughout the weekend, as well as help share the stories and impact for new people that come in. And so there will be training provided for that. You can sign up in the uh, back corner where I'm pointing if you want to participate. There's a a sign-up sheet there. A couple other quick things. If you are newer with us, as Andrew said, my name is Landon, and I get to be one of the team members. And if you're trying to figure out what this church is about or what we prioritize or value or really why we do the things that we do, the welcome lunch is probably the best way to kind of get the fire hydrant of information of kind of who we are and why we do the things we do. And so that will be next Sunday, immediately following this, the second gathering uh, of that day. We'll provide lunch, no need to RSVP, but if you have questions, if you want to just hear more, you'll get to hear from me, some of our other staff members, and maybe elders. Uh, and it's just a good time to kind of take a next step if that's something that you're interested in. Again, no need to RSVP, but we'd love to, to have you join us next Sunday. Lastly, I mentioned it last Sunday, but Christmas is going to be quickly upon us. And this year we're doing something uh, kind of quite different, actually. We are rescheduling. So normally we have had multiple or a series of services on Christmas Eve, but it's always so challenging to find the right times for that because everyone has so much going on. And we want to prioritize a window of time where we as a church family can celebrate really well. I talk all the time about how we as Christians have to shift how the world perceives us from judgmental and hypocritical to people that throw really great parties. And so that is what we are going to try to do on December 23rd. So a couple keywords, Christmas Eve Eve is when we will get together from 4 to 8 p.m. open house style. We'll have multiple food trucks and fire pits and s'more kits and all kinds of things outside, activities inside, and then we'll have two services uh, on Christmas Eve Eve, one at 5 and one at 6 30 is the plan uh, for now. So looking forward to that. Mark it down. We'll have more info coming out soon about that. 
With that said, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4 so that we can talk about Exodus chapter 20. doesn't make any sense now. It might. There's a chance. It'll make sense when we are done. When you look into somebody's eyes, you can see a whole lot of things. There can be a, a serious amount of communication that happens with no words at all and just eye contact. It can communicate trouble and brokenness, a depletedness and emptiness. It can also communicate celebration and joy, contentment, really a variety of things, but a lot can be said just with somebody's eyes. And just this week in a short holiday week, I had five different pairs of eyes that could not look me in the eye as we had conversations. Five different people, five sets of eyes as we sat together and had conversation and they attempted to tell me about, as they wanted to share and, and have these, this, this time together about challenging things, these moments where they had felt like life in some form or fashion was getting taken, stolen from them. And in that window of time, and I'm not exaggerating, five different times just this week, five different sets of eyes could not look me in the eye because there's real loss, there's real weight, and there's real communication that, that happens when we make eye contact. I had Two different families have to reschedule things in life because they were having to put a dog down after a long time together as a family, and that was just deeply challenging because of what it represented, a whole era of life for them. I had three different grown adults processing uh, the end of life for their own parents and what that looked like and the, the combination and, in essence, horrible marriage of logistics and relationship and emotion and putting together all kinds of things in that time. I had about, honestly, five to six conversations with adoptive and, and foster parents through celebrations and hope of that and a whole lot of tribulations and just mighty struggles as well. I heard stories, not like in the news, but like people I know of siblings intending to seriously harm other siblings. Not like, hey, let's punch each other a little bit, like it's normal, but like serious harm. I heard countless stories this week. And if you look into people's eyes just for a minute, you can see a lot of those stories playing out or wanting to be spoken so often, not always, but so often, life feels like it's stolen from us. Maybe just by life, the world as it is, this disease we call sin that steals life. It's not the way God intended for it to be. Sometimes from people that might be strangers, there's theft in our lives that happens in different ways. Or sometimes... The most painful way is when we make ourselves vulnerable and allow ourselves to be known and someone near us steals. Not always money, not always objects, oftentimes emotional, relational health, our well-being, things that are also stolen. Exodus twenty fifteen is Three simple words in English and two in the Hebrew, do not steal. And there's kind of some debate on what the original context of this command is. Actually, it's thought that perhaps the primary target of these three words, do not steal, is actually referring to kidnapping. Do not steal specifically an Israelite man or woman. That that was 
prohibited, not allowed, not good. There's also likely, because we see it throughout the rest of the scriptures, this idea of stealing, theft of especially larger scale objects like property. But little things stolen continuously over time also have a big impact. For example, just because math is fun, financially, if $10 a day was taken out of your savings account, 10's like almost enough to buy a coffee today. Things are getting crazy. That's not a big deal. But over a month, that would be maybe $300, $310. Over a year, 3650 Still not a ton, but that's a chunk of change. Over 10 years, $10 a day, a little amount, again and again and again and again, would be over $36,000. That's different. Seemingly... Something small, multiplied over time, can become quite large. That doesn't just apply, though, to finances or objects. Maybe even where it's increasingly exponential is in relationships and our emotional health and the the nitty-gritty, everyday stuff of life between people. I, I like to think that we all have this relational account. Anytime I have a relationship with somebody, I'm thinking about what deposits I'm making into that relational account and what withdrawals, because that's happening constantly. And any relationship that doesn't have awareness of those transactions is going to meet a point of unhealth quickly. It's often like a phone battery for me. Eventually, or at the start of a phone battery's life, it's great. It says 100%, and it's actually 100%. But like three months in, it still says 100%, but it no longer lasts like 100%. And maybe 14 months in, you wake up in the morning, and you take your phone off of the charger or whatever device system you have, and it says 100%. It displays 100%. It looks bright and happy and lively, but it lasts like two and a half hours. It's really like 27%. And I think people are the same. Maybe we start at some point with 100%, and every morning we get out of bed or roll out of bed or crawl out of bed or stumble out of bed or whatever it is and put on the the clothes, makeup, whatever it is. We go to wherever we're going and we do our best to look, to display, to put on a show of 100%. But beneath that show might be more like 17%. Might be less than full. It might be barely hanging on and needs charged quickly. Typically, you can see that in somebody's eyes. Imagine for a moment uh, a new couple gets married and they go on the honeymoon and then life starts and uh, pretend this never actually happens. But they start at this 100% account balance relationally and this husband has a great idea that he's going to give his wife two hours of quality time every single day to interact, do whatever together, to be together, which sounds like an absurd amount of time. I can't even fathom two hours a day now. But imagine that for a moment, and then just five minutes a day is taken per month, right? So after one month, instead of two hours, it's an hour and 55 minutes. That doesn't seem like it would be any issue or have any impact. But then the next month, another five minutes is taken, and we're down to an hour 50. And then the next month, another five minutes is taken, and we're down to an hour and 45 minutes. Still, that would bear, like, no issue until three and a half years go by of 
five minutes at a time being stolen over a month, and three and a half years later, zero minutes are left. Small increments build to be big influences over time, and all of a sudden, that wife looks at a man that used to value her so much and does not feel valued any longer. Ten years goes by as these Minutes continue to be stolen, not even necessarily by bad things, but stolen, and now they can't imagine a day where they actually valued each other, and it seems like just a memory. Or maybe there's another couple, and little by little by little, a wife makes remarks, slightly sarcastic, slightly demeaning, One a month, and then the next month, and the next month, and 12 years into this thing, what was a confident, strong man still pretends to be a confident, strong man, but there's a canyon somewhere in his soul that's slowly been carved out. It's a pretty common story. A little bit at a time, this happens. Maybe it's little... Johnny and little Rebecca, who every single day want to, whether they know it or not, hear their father say, I love you, or I'm proud of you, or to provide a hug, and they don't. And every single day, just a tiny little bit of life the way it was meant to be stolen. I cannot tell you in the past month how many people, grown adult people over 50, I've looked in the eyes as they shed tears because that didn't happen. Little bits of life stolen over time eventually lead to pretty big consequences in our lives. And sometimes it's this disease we call sin, just in the midst of the everyday stuff of life. Sometimes it's just sickness and health that's taken away from us, and that's not God's intent. Sometimes it's people we don't know very well, stealing in some form or fashion. Again, not just financially or objects we have, but some part of our lives And sometimes the most painful times are when people we know decide to do that, knowingly or unknowingly. As I was studying this week, I came across this this painting. It's intriguing. They're both stealing just slightly from the other, not aware that the other is simultaneously doing so to and from them. And for, for just a moment, for the, the sake of the exercise and discussion, I want to kind of bring this to life to talk about what is going on in the mind of somebody who is okay with stealing anything. And I think there's kind of three optional perspectives here that have to be taken place. We'll start with the woman. I think the, the first is this. She is determined that her needs are simply greater than his needs. Maybe there isn't enough money to put the right meal on the the table for her family that night. And just this little theft would make enough of a difference and probably won't impact him because, again, her needs are greater than his needs. And so that justifies this small little moment. 
If it's not needs, I wonder if perhaps it's wants or desires. Our wants and our desires for all of us can be things that very quickly blind us to what's going on in another person's world. Maybe her wants or desires, maybe there's a certain image or perception she wants to create about around that dining table, uh, an amount of luxury or whatever it is that's going to take just a little bit more money to create that culture and atmosphere. So her wants and desires blind her to his needs to put food on the table for his family. Maybe it's neither needs or wants. Maybe it's her perception of what she deserves. She just deserves better. That price is not right. And so literally with her hand, she reaches out to forcibly take what she believes is simply hers. Same applies to him. He either believes his needs are greater than hers and that justifies pushing the scale down, or maybe he's blinded by his own wants and desires so he doesn't even think about her as a person, as a human, with a story. She's just a means to a few more dollars in the account, or maybe it's just his perspective of what he deserves. And if he doesn't take it, it'll never become a reality for his children or his grandchildren or whatever it might be. So again, he forcibly takes it with his hand. Simply put, in this painting, as is the case in so much of our lives, love of self prevails as greater than love of neighbor. In small and significant ways, just a fingertip, but those small and significant ways over time can lead to large results. Exodus 20:15, do not steal. Do not steal. What are the other ways beyond the simplicity of finances or objects that maybe you or I find ourselves taking life from others, grasping for ourselves instead of giving generously? As a a church, family, and community, for us as restoration, are we more known for grasping for self or generously giving in love of neighbor. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commands, his answer was so simple. It was love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this beautiful line, all of the law, not some of it, but the entirety of the law, meaning in essence all of the scriptures as we know it today And the Old Testament law back then hangs, I like that word, hangs on these two. Meaning, this is the trajectory, this is the foundation. Everything is for these two things, to love God and to love others. And every other detail painted in these scriptures is for that purpose, to love God and to love others. And so again, I ask us the question, I ask you to ask yourself the question, which love prevails more in your heart? Love of self which we're all really good at, or love of neighbor. By neighbor, that could be your geographical neighbor, like in the home next to you on your street. It also could mean your vocational neighbor where you work or where you shop or whatever else is going on, which love prevails. As we went through this series of the the Ten Commandments, every single one of these ten, as we come to a close, is all centered on love. It's all this contest, this battle, this match between love of self and love of God and neighbor. And that question 
continues to, to ring in my ears every week that we process this. These Ten Commandments are not a test. The scriptures are never a test. If you view them as a test, only bad things are misunderstood and happen. They're a vision. They're a picture of what life can be and should be like, and it's so good for God's people coming out of slavery and abuse in Egypt, entering the promised land. For us today, if we follow the scripture's picture of what life can be like, the way of Jesus, it offers something really good. Again, not just correct, not just right, but something really good. Yet, I look in people's eyes, and if you do, you will see that little bits of life are consistently stolen from them. Maybe that's your story and you know it well. Things like predatory loans, steal, a real estate deal where one side works to hide a piece of information that's critical that happens frequently. Maybe you steal time from your employer and how you work or the lack thereof. Or maybe your employer steals what you've worked for and underpaying or requiring more than what was actually agreed upon. Maybe emotional health is stolen in the midst of an abusive relationship. Maybe sexual innocence is slowly and subtly taken away, brutally unfairly. Maybe physical health is stolen by the selfish stupidity of a drunk driver. It's a lot of different ways we can steal from people. Just this week, it was my, uh, my wife's birthday, and so we went out to dinner, uh, just the two of us, for her, her birthday. And we showed up at the, the restaurant. I, I had a reservation, and I walked in, and there was this other family of like five or so in front of us, I saw, and so kind of made eye contact, understood they were about to talk to the, the hostess there to get in to the restaurant. So I waited, and as I'm waiting, somebody else enters into that lobby there at the restaurant, and it was this, this sweet older couple, and she looks around and then looks at me and makes eye contact and goes, hey, is this where the line is? And I'm like, yeah. And she gets behind me, and everything's great. And then this another or an additional couple comes in with just kind of this little bit of a different feeling. Another older woman, she walks in quickly and assertively before her husband, and she glances around, but kind of like with her eyes gazing low. She assesses very obviously the situation, but she does not make eye contact. Just kind of important, I think, because if you make eye contact, you have to think about people. So this woman walks in, and she does not make eye contact, though she assesses the room. And then she kind of just a little bit here, a little bit there, moves all the way up to the hostess and says, I'm here, and I have a reservation, and she gets seated first. And the woman behind me goes, oh, I thought you were next. And I said, so did I, but I don't think she cared too much. And neither of us really cared. It was sort of something to just laugh off until I saw the eyes of this woman's husband because his eyes told a whole story. His eyes, I think we're working really hard. You've been in some of those moments to say, I'm sorry. He's looking at me and he knows. And his eyes are saying, I'm sorry. I think his eyes quite possibly were also saying, but you got the good part of this, because while you don't get to sit now, I have to go sit now and throughout all of dinner. And I felt bad for him. 
And then my, my wife and I sat down and she, in her wisdom, pointed out, which she often can point out things like this. She goes, I feel so bad for whoever's serving that table because that woman is probably going to ruin that person's night. Why? Maybe it was just a bad night. I didn't get that feel, but maybe it was. At the very least, on that night, this woman decided that her needs were greater than the needs of everybody else in that room. Or perhaps she was blinded by what she wanted, so she didn't even care about the other people in the room. I don't think that was the case, though, because there was something intentional about the lack of eye contact. Or perhaps it's simply what she felt and believed wholeheartedly that she deserved. And so she forcibly took what was hers. Now, here's the thing. I was not impacted at all by that. In fact, it was helpful. Look, I can talk about it today. <laughs> but there's all kinds of interactions like that that happen on a daily, hourly basis that actually do take something meaningful away from the life of another. A little theft, a little moment here and there that over time adds up to be significant. Simple love of self more than love of neighbor, which, believe it or not, is, is actually just a simple result of not having experienced enough of the love of Jesus. That is where selfishness comes from, not experiencing enough of the love of Jesus. We only love because he first loved us. Back to this painting. Look at where their eyes are set. The scale, right? I think their vision, their glance, where their eyes are looking is representative of what their heart is doing. Their focus is on probably either what they need more than the other or what they want, blinding them to the person literally one foot in front of them or perhaps simply what they believe they deserve. Notice also, where are their eyes not looking into the eyes of the other? Because God forbid, if you look into the eyes of another, you will see their story. And you're going to have to deal with it and make a choice. And if we're following Jesus, if we look into the eyes of another Christian or not, what you have to see is a person, a human being that Jesus loved enough to put himself on a cross for. That's pretty valuable. And all of a sudden, those little thefts, not necessarily of finances, but it could be that, or objects, but of whatever self-prioritization we place in that moment have a whole lot more meaning when we take into context stories. If we avoid eye contact, stinginess, greed, and grasping prevail over generosity and hospitality. Something we have to understand, though, is that the answer to selfishness is not to love self less. I want to say that again. The answer to selfishness is not to love yourself less. Ironically, though, uh, that, that might actually sound unchristian of me to say if we're talking about our nominal Christianity in our country. We'll hear a lot about loving yourself less and self-sacrifice, and there's certainly a hint and flavor of truth in that. But the only answer to selfishness is actually to experience the love of Jesus more. I do not care how hard you try for how long to be less selfish. It will never work. So save yourself the efforts. <laughs> the only 
antidote to selfishness is to experience more of the love of Jesus. I want to read 1 John 4 together. It's this beautiful passage. And again, I think it's a passage that might sound not Christian. It might be too dependent on Jesus himself instead of us, which we don't like because we like to be in control. Listen to these words. 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Do not, or love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. I love that, perfected in us. It's not perfect in us right now in this moment, but it is perfected in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given assurance to us from his spirit, and we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, for we are as he is in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. We love only because he first loved us. Therefore, selfishness is never about loving selfless. Getting over selfishness only happens when we experience and accept and embrace the love of Jesus more. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother. Jerry Bridges has a a quote on different perspectives we can take. Three different perspectives kind of as it relates to stealing. He says, the first says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. This is the attitude of the thief. The second says, what's mine is mine. I'll keep it. Since we're selfish by nature, this is the attitude that most people have most of the time. The third attitude, the godly attitude says, what's mine is God's. I'll share it. Again, do not steal is not merely about what we won't take from others. It's about what we will give. How do we give generously which love will prevail for us for you for me love of self or love of neighbor that's the heart of this command i'm going to close reading some of jesus words looking at the impact of the actual presence of jesus the the real life 
picture of what was written in 1 John 4. I want to read Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was Rich. So a chief tax collector basically just means he's an important tax collector. The fact that he's rich is quite important because in this case, the fact that he's rich clues us into the fact that he's also hated, not because he's rich, but because of how he got rich as an important tax collector. The way that tax collectors get rich is by taking more than the amount required of them by the government at that time. And so in this way, tax collectors find themselves very rich and simultaneously very Hated, And so that's Zacchaeus' reality in this moment. He is hated because he's wealthy because of what he's stolen from others. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. Be careful if you're doing that. Because when you try to see who Jesus is, something is going to happen. But he was not able to because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since Jesus was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, I did not think of this until I read it this morning in the first service, but I absolutely am obsessed with this sentence, or this half of a sentence. It is so good. When Jesus came to the place, there's a sense of suspension and and build up happening right here in this moment. When Jesus came to the place, do you know why? Because when Jesus comes to the place, something really good is about to happen. When Jesus comes to the place, restoration is about to occur. Also, probably something really hard, but something beautiful and good and worthwhile. And you can insert this set of words, this part of a sentence into your life, whatever it looks like right now in this moment. When Jesus came to this place here and now in your life, something guaranteed to be really good, likely to be really hard is about to happen, but it will always be worthwhile because he is always trustworthy no matter the moment. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, side note, when Jesus comes to the place, because I'm obsessed with this half of a sentence now, notice what happens. He calls him by name. He knows his story. Do you know what that means? It means he knows his needs. It means Jesus knows your wants and desires that you're often blinded by. And he wants good for you, and he's actually the only one that can provide it. He knows your needs, he knows your wants, he also knows what you deserve. That you actually were made for love and good, and that he died on a cross for you to have that. In his timing, in his way, he looked up and called Zacchaeus, who he's not met by name, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today, love the sense of urgency, I must stay at your house. So in verse 6, Zacchaeus quickly climbs out of the tree and welcomes Jesus joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. Jesus has gone to lodge with a sinful man. Do you know what they did not yet know? Back to verse 5. They didn't understand the power in these words. When Jesus came to the place, something was about to happen. Something good and something hard and something powerful and something moving is about to happen. They didn't understand what happens when Jesus shows up to a place and his presence begins to change everything. But there's Zacchaeus and he stands and says to Jesus, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. 
And if I have exhorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. To which Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Do you see what the presence of Jesus does? The presence of Jesus changes hearts filled with self-love and restores them to hearts that are loved and therefore can love neighbor. The heart of Jesus changes hands grasping to get what they need or want or believe they deserve forcibly to hands that give generously because they understand how much they are loved by the Christ. It's a common saying, hurt people hurt people. And it's a common saying because there's so much truth packed into it. It's not comprehensively true, but pretty dang close. But there's an inverse to that statement as well that I think is even more powerfully true. Loved people love people. And love comes from one place, one person, and that is Jesus. And when the love of Jesus shows up when Jesus came to the place and love prevails and love is victorious because of his work on the cross that didn't stop there, but he rose again. A death happens. And it's the death of this cycle of hurt people hurting people. It's the death of this cycle of theft of all kinds. And what it is replaced with is the breath of life and two legs walking in our streets, giving and proclaiming the love of Jesus everywhere those two legs go. And I'm referring to the two legs you have that are meant to walk around this city or greater area known as Prescott and wherever else you might find yourself on that map. Because in those places, we are called to speak and live out the love of Jesus that we have received ourselves because selfishness does not go away with loving selfless. Selfishness only goes away when we understand how loved we are by Jesus himself. One last time, look at this painting. Maybe the the takeaway from do not steal, from love your neighbor, is that we just need to shift the gaze of our eyes. Because we've been loved by Christ. He knows what you need. He wants only good for you. And has that planned. And he has said you're deserving of his love. That's what he wants for you. That's what he made you for. That was his original intent. So shift our gaze. Can we, may we, as Restoration Church, be a people who dare to look others in the eyes, who dare to see stories, who dare to see people loved, and we're capable of loving them, not because we're selfless, but because we've been so loved by Jesus himself. It's my prayer for us as a people. It's the way of Jesus and his way is good. Let's pray. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, And if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment.
to press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.